0: As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. And as Jesus sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of the Lord. It's a real pleasure to be with you here this morning to share with you guys about what's going on a little bit in uh, the life that God's called us and my family to, and I was glad to have my wife, Michaela, and our kids join us. Michaela's over here, and uh, our kids are in their various uh, age-appropriate spaces, so I think Nehemiah's a nursery, is my son, he's four, and Mary Grace is my daughter, she is seven. And they are just as exciting as those ages sound. And we've had a great time in Huntsville. Uh, we got in Friday night. We've been, as Randy said, cooking a hog for you guys. Uh, and this has been quite the adventure. And uh, it's been a blast. But we got in to Huntsville, and I didn't know really what to expect. I'd never really spent much time in northern Alabama. And it was a very beautiful town. So thank you. Well done. And uh, thanks for having me. Uh, they went to the botanical gardens yesterday and, and just had a blast. So. Hopefully we can reciprocate the hospitality with uh, some delightful port. Uh, you know, I was thinking about ways to introduce myself to you, to to know a little bit about who I am, to help you um, kind of understand where I'm coming from this morning as I share from God's Word. And really, I think the most important thing that you maybe need to know about who I am is that I love food. Um, I mean, like, who doesn't, right? We're all kind of in this together, right? But... Uh, my waistline is obvious of this fact. I think you will see when you eat uh, this hog that this is an important thing to me. And, and I think we we can all say that we love food, right? I mean, we all we eat several meals a day, maybe more. Uh, but at the heart of it, to me, it's not just the experience. It's not just the nourishment, although it's certainly those things. It's also the story. I mean... If you think about it, food at its best, I think, tells a story. It tells a story about who we are. It's, it's a cultural identifier. If you ever go visit a foreign place, one of the first things you'll do to really get a feel for who these people are is you eat the food. And You realize this is spicy or this is different, or this animal or that animal, and you get to understand a bit about who they are. And so, what I'm sharing with you today, a whole hog, is a bit of who I am. I'm from South Carolina. I grew up. My my dad's nickname was Fatback, and he was a, a award-winning pit cook in the '80s. He's got uh, these plastic trophies with hogs on them in his office. It's just, and I, as a kid, I looked up to these things like they were the Heisman Trophy. I mean, it was just that's what I aspired to when I got older. And and so, as an expression of my uh, regional upbringing, we've got some different sauces. Uh, the coastal Carolina, we have a, a vinegar-based sauce that will be available, and then uh, more central areas, we have a mustard-based sauce, and, and there's this kind of battle between which one's better, and within our own state, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm offering you both, because I think they're both good. I'm, I'm an equal opportunist when it comes to barbecue sauce, but as food can identify who we are, it can also bring people into that identity. Food is an opportunity to include and welcome people into who you are. I think the best example of this was was my wife, Michaela, when we were dating, and I think we were engaged at the time. She came and visited my other half of my family, which lives in the Ozarks of Arkansas. Now, I don't know how familiar with uh, that area you are, but they live up to the hillbilly moniker. And uh, we were at my Aunt Betty and Uncle Marvin's house, and they were... Yeah, exactly, Aunt Betty and Uncle Marvin. And they are known for... Aunt Betty makes the best biscuits and gravy, and Marvin would fry up some sort of wild game, whether it's venison or usually wild turkey. And this day, I think he was trying to test Michaela. You know, she, They were kind of feeling her out, seeing if she was the right girl for me. And he said, for dinner tonight, are you okay if we have squirrel? And Michaela, without missing the beat, said, sure. Never had squirrel in her life. And uh, it was actually quite good, and I could see the gleam in my Uncle Marvin's eye. He goes, you're all right. You're all right. <laughs> And, in a, and in, a very, uh, in a very, I'm actually getting emotional because this is a special story. In a very meaningful way, she was part of the family. She was welcome because she sat a seat at the table. She accepted who they were, their identity on the plate, and they accepted her. Uh, inversely, in the same kind of way, tables are places where we can exclude people. We can draw lines and barriers about who isn't Welcome. Uh, somewhat innocuous, but I think a good example of this is the high school uh, cafeteria lunchroom table. Uh, when I was in high school, you know, who you were often depended on where you sat. What table did you sit at? Were you the cool kid? Were you not? Were you the jock? Were you in the band? What, what were you? And it was kind of defined in many ways by where you sat. Uh, at my high school, we had a group of folks we sat together. I played football, and so I was a part of that crowd. And we, our table was kind of overflowing, and, and a lot of people wanted to sit there, and we all couldn't fit. And This was during the heyday, or I think it had just begun, the, the uh, TV show Survivor. Maybe you've heard of it. It's still on, I think. Um, but they would, uh, there was people on this deserted island, and every week they'd get together and they'd cast uh, names. They'd vote, and they'd pull the names out, and whoever got the most votes got kicked off the island. So we played lunch table Survivor. So we would all put in a, a name into the center of the table, and we'd read it out, and we'd kick somebody off the table. And what's surprising is we we gave an out. They had to do some ludicrous, uh, uh, just obscene something. And if they did it and really embarrassed themselves, then they could stay at the table. And you wouldn't believe just about every single person that got voted off uh, did these deplorable acts to stay. It was so important that they sat at that table because their identity depended on it. They were willing to do things they would not do otherwise. Where you sit... And what you eat, this is a lot about who you are. And who you welcome at your table, this is a lot about your heart. And it's in this sort of context we see Jesus coming into our world, living and ministering and interacting with people. Food was so uh, important to the life and ministry of Jesus. You see it throughout, you see a meeting in all kinds of different people's homes, from tax collectors like our scripture today to Pharisees. You see him using it as a prime example in his parables, talking about all kinds of different things. Talking about parties, wedding banquets, and feasts. The first miracle that he performs is at a banquet, turning water to wine. And the last thing he does with his disciples on the night that he is betrayed, they eat a meal. And he talks about who we are and who, how we belong because of bread and wine. His body in, his blood. in fact, this was such an instrumental part and integral to who Jesus was that when he's attacked by the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, they call him a drunkard and a glutton. While these are hyperbolic, and Jesus was without sin, they were indicative of his nature. They saw in him a person who came eating and drinking. And Jesus doesn't deny this reality but says it's a part of who he is. The bridegroom has come, let's party. But right in hand, in hand, with, those, uh, with that attack of being a glutton and a drunkard is another statement, the Pharisees said. They said, you are a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Instrumental, instrumental to Jesus' mission is eating and drinking. And our scripture that we're looking at today, I think, is a clear example of why that is. Again, we're in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And we're coming across Jesus interacting with a man named Matthew. I think it's important for us to kind of just take a step back and kind of think about what's going on in this time, in this age, this first century Judea. Uh, It's a totally, in some ways, different world than what we experience today. And yet there's a lot of similarities. Uh, This is the promised land, the promised people, the Jews. God had called them his own. He had made a covenant with them that he would be their God and they would be his people. And a, a key sign of that covenant was their inheritance, their ownership of this land of Canaan. And yet, at this time, while Jesus was on earth, they did not possess it. They lived there, but it was not their own. There was a foreign occupier, the Roman Empire. And to the perspective of the Jewish people at this time, this was an ungodly occupier. But they knew their history and they knew that when the land wasn't their own it was because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant and so a group of people religious leaders like the pharisees had raised up to help protect the covenant to protect the people from transgression so that they might inherit the sign of the covenant the land that god had promised for them they saw that their disinheritance the roman occupation was was a consequence of judgment of their sin And that if they wanted to own the land, they must be righteous. And so they began to develop a new law in many ways. It wasn't just good enough to have Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We needed a new law. Because, for example, the way they saw this is if God said you had to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, well, let's just make it the rule that you've got to get up at 4. That way if the alarm doesn't work or the, the cock doesn't crow at the right time, you're still good. But what happened over time was not this wasn't just a buffer. They called this a hedge, or a wall around the law. And so if you just didn't break that, even if you did break that, you, you were going to be protected from breaking the sinner law. But before long, that became just as important, just as vital to keeping the covenant and being faithful to it as the actual law was itself. And instrumental to this extra law was how we ate. And with who, with whom we ate. You see, for the Jews, food was a very important aspect of who they were. All the religious celebrations were marked by some sort of feast. Their, their primary act of worship, sacrifice, had to deal with food. They would offer up uh, animals. Uh, the priests, their, their, one of their major acts was to do kind of what I was doing yesterday, except it was with a pig, which was butchering animals and burning them. And, I mean, that was so instrumental to the work that they did. And the work and the laws that they had, these purity laws, these laws about what they could eat and with whom they could eat, to them set them apart. But they had forgotten the other half. Why were they set apart? What was the purpose of God's covenant with the Jews? That they might bless the nations. They were set apart for the work of God for the others, for those in desperate need of the revelation and light of our Lord. And yet Jesus is having a meal with Matthew, a tax collector, a notorious sinner, and his other band of, uh, as it says, tax collectors and sinners, which is shorthand for the not-so-nice folks. These are the people you don't want to be seen with. You don't want to be associated with these people. Matthew, a tax collector, was an instrument, an agent of this Roman empire, the empire that was the symbol of their oppression and judgment. Matthew, more than likely, was a Jew, and they saw him as a traitor, that he had traded in his, his, uh, his identity as part of the people of God to be part of the people of the empire. And so folks like the Pharisees, the religious leader of the day, they kept a long distance between them and folks like Matthew. I mean, this is how they saw it. They, they would see a guy like Matthew, a text collector, as being unclean, some sort of object that's dirty. And if you take a clean object, like a good Jew, and you were to put these together, then Matthew's uncleanliness, his impurity, would transfer over to the clean object. It would defile it. The sin was contagious. And so, of course, they see Jesus and his disciples, this man who claims to be of God, He's bringing good news and announcing the arrival of the kingdom. How could he be eating with tax collectors and sinners? And so they outright rebuke him in public. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Yet their understanding of how God works was totally wrong. And Jesus sets them right. Those who are well have no need of physician, but those are sick. See, in Jesus' economy, in the reality of the kingdom, it isn't the unrighteousness, the impurity that is contagious, but it is the holiness of God. We take the holy object, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he comes into the dark world, and he is not defied. The darkness does not overcome the light. The light overcomes the darkness. Jesus knew that there were those, all of us, who were in darkness and needed him. And instead of keeping a distance from us, Staying on his heavenly throne in heaven, he came and became like us. And he sat down at our tables and ate our food, drank our drink, and became our friend. Because he knew it was his holiness that was contagious. And his holiness would not be stamped out by anything. That's the reality. That's the reality of the world we live in, and that's the reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. And it's that reality, and in the context I mentioned earlier, where the table becomes this place of exclusion or inclusion, that I believe God is calling all of us into mission. Sometimes we get these kind of grandiose ideas about what mission must be, that it it looks like some sort of unbelievable sacrifice. You're traveling halfway around the world. And while it is those things, it can be something as simple as having a meal with someone not like you, someone who you wouldn't be caught dead with because of what people might say. Because you might be surprised at the avenues of mercy, of understanding, trust that open. When you try some squirrel, (laughs) and it's that that concept that really fuels the work that we're doing in Little Rock. Randy mentioned that I'm a church planner. Uh, I'm an ordained EPC minister. I've been working out in Colorado for a while, but Arkansas is really home. I mentioned my family in the Ozarks, Uh, and we really wanted to come home. And we began to see a deep hunger for for the gospel. And for the gospel to be lived out in real, meaningful ways in in everyday life in a place like Little Rock, Arkansas. And so we've been there since the early part of this year. And one of the first things we did was we had a barbecue. Similar to what we're doing with you today, we cooked, uh, we cooked some um, sausage, boudin, we had some uh, pork shoulders, we did a brisket, we did a couple whole chickens, the whole thing. And we just invited our neighbors, went around with some bags of cookies knocked on doors and said, come on over. We had 40 people show up. And there wasn't any sort of agenda. We didn't put up a sign saying this is our church. We didn't pass out anything, but we simply listened to people. We shared our story with them on a plate, and we listened to them reciprocate with their stories, their worries, who they were, how they got here, what, what were their concerns about this community. And it was surprising to see person after person reestablish, reciprocate this hospitality, this welcome. And since that time, we've had our neighbors texting us late at night to tell us about their sick children. We've had them coming over to deliver food, we've had them inviting us in the neighborhood associations we've had them we've had them go through tough times and seek comfort with us one example which you know I don't want to take advantage of this but it, for the sake of communication with you but it, I think it's apt our neighbor, her her boyfriend, died one night. It was very unexpected, and the ambulances and the police were outside, and the lights were going on, and everyone's kind of huddled outside. We're on our front porch, and our neighbors are kind of curious what's going on. And Michaela says, "I'm going over there, my wife," and I said, "No, you're not. <laughs> like this is none of our business." And with righteous indignation, she looked at me and said, "Yes, it is. These are our neighbors." And she walked across the street, and you could see the other neighbors turn to her and embrace her, and ask what's going on. And she got the lowdown. And she said, "What do we need to do?" And her neighbor said, "I guess, I guess we just need to be good neighbors." Jesus says the entire law is summed up in this: love the Lord your God with everything you got, and love your neighbor as yourself. We have been set apart. We are people of the covenant. The Spirit of God resides within us for one reason. We may love him and may love our neighbors. And that act does not have to be so radical. It does not have to be so out of grasp for you. It could be as simple as cooking whatever meal it is that you love to cook and inviting your neighbors into your home and perhaps, perhaps, inviting them into the love that you have In Christ. I mentioned that uh, Jesus had a bit of a scandalous reputation with the religious folks. He was a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners. The Pharisees had a reputation too, they were very religious. What's your reputation? There's grace and mercy. Our Father loves us, and he sent his Son to die for us, that through faith and grace, you may be part of the family of God. Will you hear his call today to be loved and exchange that love with those who are in need of the great physician, the great healer, Jesus Christ? Please pray with me. Father, thank you that you have loved us when we were totally undeserving. You've chosen us since before the foundation of the world to be your holy people, set apart for the world. God, help us to see ways in which we can extend hospitality to those who are near us. And God, help us to see how we can receive the hospitality of our neighbors and those different from us as Jesus did in this story. Help us to be a light into the world simply by sharing a meal, sharing a drink, and sharing our lives. Thank you for the grace you've given us in Jesus, and we praise you this morning. Amen.